excited to be back at work after a summer of raising hell and raising funds. I wonder what I missed while I was away. Hmm. Better check my messages. Hi there. I'm not sure if this is the right office that I'm contacting, but if this is the guy who reviews bad TV shows and uses my gimmick, please give me a call when you get this message. There's a few things we need to discuss. Who the hell is that? Uh, hi again. I forgot to mention, my name is Diva, and I'm the judge, jury, and executioner from the expansion shelf between the third and fourth circles here in, well... Here, and I do a YouTube show about bad musicals on film. I wanted to touch base with you because I've been listening to what you've been doing on the Limbo Circle, and it seems as though your podcast may or may not have borrowed an element or two from what I do for a living. Anyway, give me a call as soon as you can, preferably before the day is out. Thanks. Judge, jury, and executioner? I hope this lady knows I was away for a period of time. Hi, me again. I just found out from the boss's secretary that you're actually out of your office for the summer trying to spread the word about your show and start up a Patreon for it at the same time. While I do find that to be horribly inconvenient, I'll just wait till you get back, whenever that is, and then we'll talk. See you then. Oh, crap. Should I lawyer up? Maybe I should place a call to the Fraud Circle. That's where all the good ones are anyway. Huh. Never heard this ringtone before. Hello, telehealth. Uh, took you long enough. Is this the lady who's been leaving messages on my machine? <laughs> First of all, it's not lady. You either address me as Diva, Ma'am, Your Honor, or Dread Mistress of the Inferno. And second, you've got some nerve keeping me waiting for four months. I don't care how many souls you're trying to drag down here through your Patreon. That's patreon.com slash telehellpodcast. And didn't the boss's secretary also tell you where I've been for the past few months? In order to do any fundraising of any kind, I was temporarily relocated to the Greed Circle. I had to watch one tutorial video after another featuring members of the RNC just to get things set up right. Well, according to the file that I've pulled on you, you're only a rookie demon. You don't even have your horns yet. How the here are you able to gain access to a lower floor without getting your soul permanently vaporized? I was there on a temporary waiver. I'm sure you know how the boss feels whenever the thought of reaping incredibly large, uncalled-for profits puts a twinkle in its eye. Well, anyway, sorry for the delay and the highly questionable messaging system that we have, apparently. Now, what was it that you wanted to talk to me about? I think that might be best said in person. <sighs> Fine. You're on what circle? Again, I'm right in between Gluttony and Greed, where the Court of Infernal Affairs is headquartered. If you see us borrows on your way down, you've gone too far. Well, considering it takes months for me to get to the center of hell just by foot, it could be a while for me to get there. You've been to the center of... Never mind. Thankfully, the study of pneumatics was one of my many minors when studying at Demon School. Wait, pneumatics? Demon School? I seriously need to read up on the mythology of this place. Clearly you do, and you've got all of eternity for that. Uh, meanwhile, stand still for a moment, and you'll be in my office in about, uh, 15 seconds. How's that now? What the hell is this? Ah! And now, back by 
popular harassment. This is Tele-Hell. No, I had one of those. But technically, you don't. Tube technology is only available for those who work on the gluttony circle or lower. And that's just one of the many perks you get the lower you find yourself here. I guess. So, what's this about, anyway? I've been trying to reach you for the past few months because I like your show and I like your style, but something about that style seems a little too familiar. Well, there are a lot of podcasts out there that trash all kinds of media. Would you care to be a little more specific? To my knowledge, I was the first one whose program used the Underworld as its central theme, even before that CinemaSins nonsense, and for about seven millennia and counting, all seemed to be going very well. But then I hear that there's some upstart lost soul out there who's trying to horn in on my business, and he doesn't even have his horns, or his leather wings, or hooves. Or a speared tail, or burnt skin. Are you sure you're supposed to be down here? Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. First of all, I've only been here for two years, going on three. I haven't even cracked a blister yet. Second, nobody owns the rights to hell or any of its legal subsidiaries. Except maybe Jeff Bezos, Charles Koch, or the Murdoch family on an LLC arrangement. I gotta call the folks on the fraud floor to double-check that. But as far as I know, hell and the other place are both in the public domain. So anybody out there can use it as a gimmick on their own show. Third, I've seen your show. I know your show is about musicals, and my show is about TV. That comparison alone makes things a moot point. And fourth, yours is a YouTube show. Something I wish I could do on the meager budget of dust mites and deer ticks that I get for doing this in the first place as an audio podcast only. I know we just met, and I know you outrank me, but I will be damned even more than I am right now if I'm going to have someone intimidate me because, Satan forbid, my show is similar to someone else's. Are you done with your microaggression? I hope so. Good. Because that's not what I wanted to call you down here for. Personally, I don't care if there's another show out there that reviews media with our workplace as gimmick. If anything, I was hoping there would be more awareness about the underworld being pushed around these days. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses, but, you know, us. So you're not trying to sue me for any kind of idea or brand infringement? No, I wanted to reach out to you because while my show does cover bad musicals, they're only the ones that were either theatrical releases, TV movies, or one-time-only TV specials. But because of the rules I made for myself, I have never once covered a bad musical that was also a TV series. And since you seem to be the resident TV guy around here, I was curious if you had the time to cover one of those shows with me. Well, that depends. I mean, television has seen its fair share of musicals over the years, mostly as the aforementioned one-off TV specials. But the genre itself on television seems to swing wildly on the pendulum. For every good show out there, like, for instance, the TV adaptation of Fame in the 80s, you get something baffling, like when Stephen Bochco tried to get police officers to sing. I'm the baby merchant, tots are us, I give you all the service. 
Oh, no. You didn't want me to review that with you, did you? <laughs> I may be a judicial officer who takes down bad musicals, but even that is a little out of my pay grade. <sighs> Thanks, Satan, for that. Anyway, the notion of musicals as a TV series has seen a somewhat spotty track record over the years. On rare occasions, they work well enough so that they're fondly remembered. But most of the rest of the time, musicals, especially in episodic series form, walk a fine line between entertaining and embarrassing. Which brings us to the show I was hoping we could be covering today. There was this show that aired sometime in the mid-2000s. It was supposed to be an Americanized version of a show that was super popular in the UK, and... Oh, hell no! Not that! First of all, you know where you are, and so do I, so for the duration of this meeting, you will refer to this place as here, as in how the here, who the here, where the here, etc. It's kind of my thing. Second, if you refuse, I can place a call to the boss so fast he can have your soul reincarnated into a meat pie used for a regional theater production of Sweeney Todd in Tucson, Arizona. And third, yes, that. I need your assistance in helping me take down and bring to justice a little show called Viva Laughlin. You think the bunny and I killed Buddy to get a hold of his money? I really love couples. So do I. Wanna have sex? How's that gonna help? Hugh Jackman, Melanie Griffith, and Lloyd Owen star in Viva Laughlin, CBS Thursday, October 18th hear the expression, the bigger they are, the harder they fall? Well, this show is People's Exhibit A to the phrase. A show that had so much hype, an ample amount of star power, and an even bigger budget around it, that once the show inevitably got cancelled, its place among TV's all-time biggest punchlines would be cemented, lacquered, embossed, and frozen in carbonite from now until the end of time. And the sad thing is, this show, like many other failures, had all the right ingredients in place, albeit ones that they seemed to photocopy from the original British recipe. <laughs> I guess we're doing this. Before there was Aviva Lachlan, there was Aviva Blackpool, or simply just Blackpool to those who saw the original version on the BBC. The show was all about the goings-on at England's Blackpool Beach, the part of England that seemed to emulate Las Vegas if it were by the sea. The premise of that show was that a man named Ripley... Believe it. Or not. Not that Ripley. Get away from her, you bitch! Not that Ripley either. This thing, I just can't handle it. There you go, right, Ripley. Anyway, this guy Ripley was the central figure in a murder of a person that happened to die at a fledgling casino that he owned, or as the Brits call them, arcades. The result of which winds up unraveling his past and threatens the life that he made for his family thanks to the continued pursuit by one of Blackpool's local detectives, one who, over the course of the series, winds up falling in love with Ripley's wife. But the real twist of this show wasn't that this was just a murder mystery that took place at a casino. Rather, this was a musical murder mystery that took place at a casino. And we have to put quotation marks on the word musical because even though a number of the popular songs they used are key in how the show presented itself, it was this odd intrusive narrative where the actors would sing the songs while the original pop versions would play in the background. A practice similar to the one popularized by BBC screenwriter Dennis Potter, who would have actors lip sync to popular songs for the 1978 version of Pennies from Heaven and the 1986 version of The Singing Detective. 
effective. Still, though, as strange a gimmick as that may have been, it worked well enough over the course of six episodes, one TV movie, and a series of critical accolades that the show wound up attracting the attention of both the CBS network and somebody who's no stranger to the world of musicals. Because I am Hugh Jackman, and I've waited so long, and no recession can stop my confession or silence my Hugh Jackman, the man who would be both the boy from Oz on Broadway and James Logan Howlett for several hundred X-Men movies, would lend a significant amount of his clout towards bringing Blackpool to American shores with original BBC series creator Peter Boker in tow. But they wouldn't be doing so alone. As it turns out, this new American adaptation of the show would wind up costing many red cents due to how expensive it would be to put on a TV show that was highly dependent on popular music as part of its plot lines. So Jackman's company, Seed Productions, was able to use said clout to convince BBC Worldwide, Sony Pictures Television, and even CBS's production division itself to pony up a little extra. And since nobody, except maybe Ryan Reynolds, could resist his charm, not only would the show be greenlit for the 2007 TV season with Jackman as one of the executive producers, but he would also play what he hoped would be a recurring role on the show. But more on that part in a minute. Of course, if the show was going to be as good as its British counterpart, the casting of the American equivalents was going to be key, even if the main character on the show was to be played by a guy from the UK anyway. Which, on the surface, does kinda, sorta make sense, considering one of the biggest shows on TV at that time also starred an Englishman. We can spend all day arguing right or wrong. Give me the hundred bucks. We didn't bet. We could spend all day arguing whether we bet or not. Give me the hundred bucks. But I digress. On the original Blackpool, the character of Ripley Holden was played by stage veteran David Morrissey. On the new American version, the character would be played by fellow UK theater vet Lloyd Owen. Of course, there was at least one stark difference between Morrissey and Owen. Morrissey was England-born and bred, while Owen was of Welsh descent. And I know that may seem like a subtle difference on the surface, but once we get into the show, you'll hear just how noticeable that difference is in terms of acting, singing, and especially trying to Americanize a British accent. Rounding out the cast are a fair share of showbiz mainstays who will be doing their best to make things look plausible. People like the aforementioned Wolverine, Don Johnson and Antonio Banderas's ex-wife, Shelley from Twin Peaks, and President Palmer's brother from 24. No, whoa, 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 whoa. You do not introduce a cast member of Lucifer that way. You do realize he plays an angel on that show, right? <sighs> Point taken. With the show being ordered for the fall season of 2007 and seven episodes already produced, CBS felt so strongly about it that the network gave the show the earliest preview exposure before any other series slated for the fall, by airing a series of teaser trailers during that year's Tony Awards. And as the fall approached, the network wanted to be sure that the series got the liftoff it deserved, by scheduling its premiere to air immediately after one of the network's biggest hits, CSI. No, the one that took place in Vegas. And don't play the theme song to that one, the music budget for this episode is tight enough as it is. Anyway, it was clear that CBS had a lot of... A lot of... I've been down here so long, I don't know if I can say it. A lot of... It's faith, diva! The network had a lot of faith in the show! 
hey, how come your voice gets to go deep when you get angry, but mine doesn't? Do you really want to talk about plot holes in my show? Or would you rather bring this deformed jukebox of a TV show to justice? Don't get so defensive. Well, that's kind of hard not to do here in a courtroom. Just remember who outranks you here, rookie. And as long as you're in my office, let's examine the case of Viva Laughlin. <laughs> Your office, but my show. Which means I get to do this. October 18th, 2007. Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto returns home after eight years in exile. The Writers Guild of America was only three weeks away from starting one of their biggest work strikes in history. And at 10 p.m., 9 p.m. Central, CBS's Eggs for the Fall were placed in the basket of an Americanized British musical murder mystery show. Just saying that sentence out loud doesn't give me too much hope. Only instead of Blackpool, England, the proceedings take place in Lachlan, Nevada, which the show wants to inform us is 129 miles south of Las Vegas, even though the opening song is Viva Las Vegas. But if we were looking for a geography lesson, we'd all be asking ourselves, Where in the world is San Diego? Watch your back! Instead, we see what looks like a typical morning in the life of our new Ripley Holden. And while it seems like a typical family breakfast in typical family suburbia, something seems a little off about Ripley's typical American accent. Except you weren't raised in a trailer Yeah, well, ranks to riches. I'm just showing Jack that his C-student abilities need not hold him back. Let me show you what believing can achieve. Off the phone, Cheyenne. <sighs> Incredible. One minute and 18 seconds in and already... What the hell kind of accent is that? <clears throat> what the... where? <sighs> what the here is this accent? They're happy? Not until they're suffering, sweetie. Besides my own, I mean. Getting back to the point, I know actors from the UK are probably better at covering up their Britness than any other part of the world. But as such, Lloyd Owen should at least be able to know how to do it too. But in the few seconds I get to hear the guy speak, he's making Microsoft Sam sound like a dialect coach. I'm just showing Jack that his C-student abilities need not hold him back. Let me show you what believing can achieve. Lloyd's accent is so hard to pin down that the amount of head scratching you're going to wind up doing over it will cause your fingers to peel off the scalp and hit the bone of your skull. And we're only a minute into the show! Owen's accent is dodgy and his singing is indifferent, but what really kneecaps him is the character. Now, I haven't seen Dennis Potter's Pennies from Heaven or The Singing Detective, but the movie versions of both have appeared before my court, and one of the things that sticks out the most about both of them is their unsympathetic leading men. In this, Viva Laughlin also follows the Potter mold. Ripley Holden is everything that is loathsome in a male lead. Smug, egotistical, boorish, toxically masculine, inexplicably portrayed as someone who commands the admiration of men and the devotion of women, and always managing to succeed through no real skill or merit of his own. I hated him more than every single character in this series, and that includes the borderline stalker police investigator and the college professor dating his barely legal student. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to try my best not to let a guy who makes the sound of a cat sleeping on an active manifold sound good cloud my judgment for the rest of the show. But that is the slimmest of promises. As we continue to see how the day starts for Ripley and his family, that also includes a belated birthday present for his son. And since it's established early on just how much of a high life this family strives to have, I can't think of a more appropriate gift for a teenager than a car reserved for those celebrating midlife crises. Happy birthday, buddy. 
Are you kidding me? I thought we talked about a sensible car. This is a sensible car if you're a teenager with hormones on parades. Take it for a ride. Go pick up some girls. Try to keep it under 80 on the freeway. Don't come home to midnight. No, 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 no. Under 50, home in an hour. Not While I'm sure the kid in the Corvette will have some bearing on the plot later, we cut to a more ample use of Viva Las Vegas. Only this time, our main character is singing it. Or at least we think he is, were it not for the fact that the actual Elvis Presley music track is intensively drowning out Ripley. Bright light city gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. And, quite honestly, the poorly dubbed singing would not be this scene's biggest problem, as we are treated to the first of what will be too many lifeless pieces of choreography throughout the show. Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! Okay, Your Honor, I'm going to safely assume that you've seen the original Blackpool series. So, I ask you, is the choreography supposed to be this boring? I mean, you probably have one of the most high-energy songs in pop music history, but the guy singing and dancing in it seems to have all the enthusiasm of an unstained 2 by 4 What gives? Most of the choreography in Viva Laughlin doesn't even deserve that name. It's people riding in their cars or walking around. And when they do try to throw steps in... It's embarrassing. Here, for example, we have Owen on a table trying to do his best Elvis hip shake, while a few background dancers do a bit of step-touch turn around him, which is all pretty weak and made worse by the awful camera angles, which seem to be inspired by the moral guardians who refuse to allow the king to be filmed below the waist, lest his thrusting pelvis corrupt the morals of young ladies. After witnessing a performance that would be an insult to dinner theater, we then get to meet Ripley's right-hand man and the casino's accountant, Jonesy, played by veteran character actor P.J. Byrne. Bad news. No such thing, only mountains to be climbed. Oh, okay, well then I hope you have your rope with you because Buddy Baxter's waiting for you in your office. I think he wants out. What gave you that idea? Uh, it was something he said, I want out. His character would probably be best described as Ripley's Jiminy Cricket, his moral center, if not a little wishy-washy. As we just heard, Jonesy warns Ripley that one of the casino's business partners wants to back out of the project for reasons. Wind farms? What the hell are you talking about? Where's the magic? Wind farms? Come on! You're my partner. Ripley, I'm sorry, but my bunny, she wants the best. You said you were in for 25% of this. Where am I going to find another investor in two weeks who's going to stack me those kind of chips? Uh, okay, just, just one more time and I swear I'll shut up about it. The accent. Just... The accent. It's like the Rubik's Cube of human dialects. Oh, sweet Lucifer, make like Elsa and let it go. The more you dwell on this, the longer you stay here. It's like if Liam Neeson and Carrie always gave birth to a James Bond villain. It's that inscrutable. It's just... I just... just, Breathe, (sighs) narrator. We're only five minutes into this. I'll take the next scene. Act 2 begins with Ripley grasping at straws as to where his next investor comes from, but not before meeting his daughter's latest boyfriend and textbook example of the Electra Complex. Boy, that's good, Huff. Mr. Holden, Steve Bridges. I'm the drama professor at the college. They met in Shakespeare class. Isn't that cute? How old are you, Steve? 42. And what first attracts you to an 18-year-old woman? Her mind, I suppose, what with you being a professor and all. You said you were going to be civil. Oh, this is me being civil. And while I'm sure that minute of awkwardness will have no bearing on the plot later, the next day Ripley continues to lament on his sudden lack of funding. I don't get it. 
We scammed some Yahoo in Salt Lake City into buying the convenience stores. Where's that cash? 40% was a down payment to the bank for the property. Not to mention, you got pieces of marquee lying against the wall because you can't afford the crane to get it up. Oh, so we should just torch the side and claim the insurance. No, 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 no. As your account, I can't condone anything illegal that I haven't thought of. So, find me a legal way of getting a million bucks. Which brings us to our next licensed song, as well as the introduction to what some hoped would be the next signature role for our special guest star slash executive producer, Hugh Jackman. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. And while I'm trying to wrap my head around whatever the fuck I'm looking at, this is also a good time to bring up another question about how the show uses its music. Yes, I know, they did this on the original Blackpool, but considering how expensive music rights can be for most forms of media, wouldn't it have made more sense if they simply bought the backing track of the song and have the performers do the singing instead of having what sounds like the most awkward duet you'll ever hear in your life or death taking place? At least this way, it would save the show some money so that when they do the accompanying production number, it doesn't look so claustrophobic. Everything about this number makes me feel like I'm on a subway at rush hour. Everything from the cramped casino floor to gold-mirrored hallways that The weekend would mock, and even Jackman's finale on the top of a roulette table just screams, eh. And above all else, Hugh Jackman has been known to have musical talent. Why have Mick Jagger drown it out? Lord of Darkness love him, Jackman is trying. And I mean really, really trying. He has a wicked gleam in his eye that suits sympathy for the devil, and he is selling it like a newbie doTERRA rep trying to impress her upline. But he's hamstrung by a format that drowns out his singing, surrounds him with bad choreography, and is about as interesting as watching paint dry. Believe me, I know we've got a lot of hedonists doing exactly that around here. Regardless of that misadventure and incompetent staging, Ripley and Jonesy attempt to make their pitch to Jackman. The results are exactly what you expect them to be. What you got? 25% share in my casino hotel. You uh, play golf? No. Well, I do. With your bank manager. Your mortgage is up to your melons, Ripley, and you just lost an investor. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here kissing up to me. You don't open, can't pay your mortgage. Don't pay your mortgage, the bank forecloses, and I... By the side of the knockdown price. Afterwards, we find out that there's more to the whole wind farm story and to Jackman's motives than meets the eye. You still have him in that fling with Bunny Baxter? <laughs> still to make sure the buddy still invests in wind turbines and not Ripley's casino. Yes, boss. But that woman is like a toll bridge, so Just fix it. <laughs> we then whiplash ourselves back to the daughter's older professor boyfriend's sub subplot. But don't worry. That ends as fast as you can say, who cares? Just because your daughter's a babe really shouldn't be my problem. You know, and another thing. Have you ever considered that just maybe she's the one chasing me? Oh. Now that we got that out of the way, we proceed to Ripley trying to get the funding through another recurring special guest star, Melanie Griffith, who plays the wife to the guy from the beginning who wanted to invest in wind farms. But then we get into one of those we-go-too-far-back cliches. You know what I know? I know that you are not who you are pretending to be. Hubby Poo and Daddy Daw and all that Norman Rockwell crap. I made a promise to myself when I got the casino together. From here on out, Natalie... Oh, I do not want to hear the N-word. 
choices in this show are awkward enough. But now we gotta hear Melanie Griffith give Yoko Ono a run for her money with singing. Hey, she did a run in Chicago on Broadway once. Have a little respect for the stage. Oh, really? The name on everybody's lips is gonna be Roxy. The lady raking in the chips is gonna be Roxy. Okay, I take it back. That's what I thought. On top of that, I can't believe that they would desecrate a song by Blondie this way. I'm gonna lose you. I'm gonna give you the slip. The slip of the hip. Which, by the way, brings me to something that I've always wanted to know about musicals in general. I know there's a lot of suspension of disbelief involved in 99% of them, but something I've always wanted to know... When in the real world can talk singing be construed as a regular conversation? If that exchange happened in real life, it would just be as simple as, I want you. Yeah, well, I don't. Well, you won't get your money. And that would be it. But why belabor the point anywhere else? Well, the commonly held wisdom of the musical is that the music takes over when emotions get too intense for regular speech. This isn't always the case. Dave Malloy flipped the script by making the most intense confession in Great Comet the only spoken line in the show, but it's a good general ground rule. Here, however, the justification for so many of the songs is it kind of fits with the scene and people will remember it from the radio, which has been the downfall of many jukebox musicals better than this one. So now that we sat through a mini-performance piece that could have easily saved a few pages of script and a few dollars of budget... We get that same scene again. Only with spoken words used instead of sung ones. Buddy is at that stage in his life where the sun always seems to be setting. And personally, I like to see the sunrise. And you happen to have the best sunrise this side of the Grand Canyon. So, if I do this for you, all I would ask for in return is a little company. Literally the exact same conversation using the Blondie song minus the Blondie song. Just think, if CBS and Hugh Jackman chose not to make that financial decision, maybe the show would be able to afford enough to retitle itself Viva Reno or Viva Tahoe or any other non-Vegas city in Nevada. But nope, we have to have our redundancies. Nevertheless, Ripley presses on by going on a drunken binge through Laughlin that ultimately leads to his yet-to-be-open casino and also leads to the next day, where suddenly the police show up. Why? Because the guy who invested in the wind farms got the wind knocked out of him permanently. And for the sake of this show taking place outside of Las Vegas, this would have been the perfect case for the CSI crew to solve. Act 3 begins with Griffith doing what grieving widows do best— pin the blame on the last person she spoke to the day before. Why did you do it? Why don't you ask him where he was? Ask him where he was last night and ask him why he was angry with my husband. How could you? A perfectly rational response, I'm sure. 
Honestly, I want to see Ripley on death row for this. I don't care if he killed his former partner. I just want to see him suffer. But Griffith's outburst introduces us to our next character, Detective Peter Carlyle, originally played on Blackpool by David Tennant, but played here by Eric Winter. And not unlike the original character, he pretty much plays the Javert to Ripley's Jean Valjean. And hopefully Carlyle has better vocal abilities than Russell Crowe on a good day. Sorry, Peter Carlyle. Laughlin PD assigned me to the case. Partner Mick. This is the part where facts and forensics usually fall together like raindrops from the sky. That makes no sense. Most things don't. And that would include this show, but go on. You and Miss Baxter seem pretty familiar with each other, huh? Screaming and all? But he was my business partner. Mrs. Baxter's his wife. Was. We know each other socially. It's that simple. Love simple. So, while Ripley tries to pick up the pieces, he also tries to cover his tracks with the aid of his reluctant wife. Buddy Baxter is dead in your office. Dead! Well, you can't think for a second that I had it. Don't! Just don't! When did you stop telling me things? When you started making a big deal out of every little thing I said. So because I have an opinion, you cut me out of your life? You want to have sex? How's that going to help? Normally, I would complain that going from a heated conversation to angry sex seems highly implausible, but then again, so does the idea of Melanie Griffith singing in the first place. So we move to the next day, where Detective Carlyle and his partner stake out Ripley's home and run a few scenarios out loud. Hey, our jobs would be a whole lot easier if the video cameras and the Viva were up and running. See who went in and out of there. We're flying blind, Nick. In the dark. You know who's good at shedding light? Wives. Like Bunny? Oh, no, like her. Trick is to talk to them when they don't know who you are. You mean like the homicide detective investigating their husband? Precisely. Yeah, he wants to bone Ripley's wife. Let's not mince words. That's pretty much the ulterior motive here, and... If I'm not mistaken, it happened on Blackpool, too. Only two episodes of Viva Laughlin ever aired, but anybody with a working knowledge of narrative can see exactly where this is going. Peter tries to get close to Natalie in order to gain evidence against her husband, but in the process, gasp, he becomes attracted to her. How can he continue his investigation when his heart has been compromised? Will he choose duty over love? Will Natalie be tempted away from her awful husband who may or may not have actually cheated on her? But that hardly matters as that's the least of his flaws? Tale as old as time Song as old as rhyme Beauty and the creeps On that note... Let the awkward flirting begin. Excuse me, miss? Yes? Hi. So sorry to bother you, but uh, you live here, right? Yes. You like this car? Yes, I live here. Yes, it's a nice place to live. And yes, I like my car. So the conclusion I draw is that you're very happy here. In the neighborhood, yes. But you're not happy? No, I, I, I didn't say that. Look, I have to get going. It's a lovely neighborhood. Good luck to you. Okay, there's meat cute, there's meat awkward, and then there's meat creepy. That experience was one of those three, but I'm honestly not sure which one. Possibly meet awkward, so I can easily transition to more awkwardness at the start of Act 4. This time involving the family at dinner. Kids at school today asked me if you killed Buddy Baxter. Jack! No, it's okay, Natalie. He's not a kid anymore. Oh, sure, I remember my own daddy talking about his first time as a homicide suspect. I may be many things, son. But I am not a murderer. And let's chase down that awkwardness with even more flirting between the detective and Ripley's wife. Well, 
Looky, looky. The nice lady from the neighborhood. How's the house hunting going? Uh, well, slow and steady wins the race, right? Between the poorly produced musical numbers and even more tepid dialogue, it's amazing that this show made it past the pilot phase. But we're not done yet. As Ripley continues to mull over what tomorrow will bring, Hugh Jackman's bodyguard, a.k.a. the angel from Lucifer, pays him a visit. Looks like you're going to be working for Nikki after all. I don't think so. Ripley, he's just going to turn that screw a little bit harder. I mean, you got a huge debt, right? Absolutely no cash flow. I mean, you can't even... You can't even open up the one place that could save you. And there's also that dead body upstairs in your office. Uh, Wait, so are they implying that the corpse is still up there? Because it seems like days since that murder happened, clearly an ambulance and a body bag should have taken him away by now. I know, I know. I heard it too. But corpses mean nothing if Ripley can't get the casino open on time with adequate funding. Fortunately for the start of Act 5, Ripley's son comes in with a book bag ex machina, the contents of which are derived literally from an ex machine. What's this? Just open it. You're in trouble? You mean selling drugs? No, my car. Why? Didn't you like it? I loved it, but I don't need it. With newfound cash flow, Ripley has an equally newfound spring in his step. So much so that... What are you doing, Ripley? I'm living the dream, Josie. I'm living the dream. You can't see them all. No, 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 no. Please, not not another poorly sung duet. And especially by a guy whose accent needs his own copy of Rosetta Stone. While you've been out running, I've been waiting half the musical number has the good sense of being mostly actual song and not Lloyd Owen singing monotonously over it except at the beginning. As it's going, we get a quick montage of all the people that Ripley has pissed off over the course of the past 90% of the show. You know, just in case people forgot who was in the show or needed the reminder that the actors in question may be sacrificing a significant piece of their careers to participate in it in the first place, or wanted to refresh their memory on all the people whose lives are actively being ruined by this horrible, horrible person. Which brings us to what exactly Ripley does with the money that his son gave him. $250,000 to be exact. I didn't think Corvettes cost that much in 2007, but what do I know? Now, you'd think that with an angel investment like this... Well, that's the expression. Have you ever heard of a devil investor before? Do the names Ivan Boski, Bernie Madoff, and Don LaPrey ring any bells? Anyway... You think that with an investment like that, Ripley would use it towards something useful, like getting his casino open on time. But because of the state that he's in right now, was there ever going to be any other option than this? To place a bet, money place, two hundred fifty thousand. Come on, while I'm young. Need permission to raise the limits. Any commission on all that? Well, hurry up. My shorts are getting wet. And just as Ripley's shorts are about to get wet, and we also question how young is too young to be wearing Depends, Hugh Jackman comes back to see if he can psych Ripley out. So, you ready to take my offer? Hold it. I'm ready to place a bet. It's a $150,000 bet that pays even money might just get you count to the stakeout, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and it all comes down to this. And once again, for comparison's sake, how does Blackpool's Ripley get out of his own situation? Who knows and who cares? If you've seen the luck be a lady scene from Guys and Dolls, you know exactly how this wild gamble will end. 
especially since this was made under the assumption that this would not be the second-to-last episode of the series. And in a sane world, Ripley would take the money and run. But because this is trying to set up a series, we all know that's not how escapism works. He, of course, lets things ride just to shove it in Wolverine's face. One more for luck. One more for luck. We have a man in the house. (laughs) Okay. Uh, For all the flaws that this show has, including his sympathy for the devil routine earlier, uh, shit, I can't stay mad at Hugh Jackman for having a little fun with the role. Well, if it helps, you can always be mad at him for being buddy-buddy with the Kushners and for continuing to stand by Scott Rudin so he can star in a bog-standard, wider-than-Donny-Osmond revival of The Music Man that absolutely nobody is asking for at this moment. Ew. No wonder Ryan Reynolds' fake hates him. Anyway... For the sake of contrivance, Ripley goes for Double or Nothing, and... 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 So with a million in his pocket, Ripley is able to open up the Viva Casino on Viva Laughlin. And even though the show has gone down in history as one with a somewhat bad reputation, I have to admit that there's some things that make this show so bad it's good. So, where does Viva Lachlan... Uh, wait a minute, aren't we forgetting something? Nope, show's over, and this is where we wrap things up. But wasn't there another moment from the show that people have used to turn it into the punchline that it is? Can't say that there is, so let's just go and... No, I remember it was on that show where Joel McHale made fun of TV shows. I would recall Viva Lachlan jokes on Community, and... Besides, wasn't Abed more adept to obscure references? Oh, wait, now I remember. That was when he hosted The Soup. Soup? There's no soup. Why would I know a soup? Let me just do a quick YouTube search. I really think we should leave well enough alone on this one, Your Honor. Ah, here it is. Diva, don't! I'm still standing better than I ever did. Looking like a true survivor. Why, 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 why would you cancel that? We need that. No wonder I didn't see it on the pilot episode, because that clip is on the second episode of Viva Laughlin, which I hope you don't mind sticking around to review. And what if I don't? <laughs> You're not the only one here who gets to talk to the boss. I'll just tell them that you were absent on the job, and I'm sure that will go over really well down there. So much so that by the time they're done with you, you'll wish that you died all over again. And need I remind you, I'm the judge, jury, and executioner down here who can get shit done that you don't even know about. You got it? Ooh, that voice modulation feels good. Okay, then. I can stand to stick around. Good. But first I need to get my tuning pitchfork sharpened. We'll take a short recess, and then we can continue looking at this poor excuse of a British export. After the break. You don't get to say that. Like you said, it's your show, but it's my courtroom, rookie. 
for cleaning up. There's just one word for Viva paper towels. Unbelievable. Viva's unbelievably strong on dried on stains and unbelievably absorbent on messy spills. Viva versus the other leading towel using a spray cleaner on this dried-on grape jelly. See? Yours fell apart. Not Viva. Absorbs the mess and finishes the job. Unbelievable! This week on Telehell's premium content of the Dan. Make a wish. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of the damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash telehell podcast and now back to this week's torture october 21st 2007 an alleged style of music known as crunk was sweeping the country Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett released their graphic novel, Good Omens. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, we start things off with Ripley facing harsh criticism over the newly opened Viva Hotel and Casino. What's it say? The Viva, Laughlin's newest casino, recently opened its doors. Judging from the turnout, perhaps they should have stayed closed. Ripley Holden, owner and proprietor, continues to be under investigation for the murder of business associate Buddy Baxter. They say there's no such thing as bad publicity, but in the case of the Viva, apparently there is. And before you ask whether or not this might be a metaphor for the actual scathing reviews that the pilot got, which we'll get to later, we promise, Ripley spits in the faces of his doubters. Okay, so the uh, press isn't what we hoped it would be. They'll move on to a new story as soon as a twister wipes out a trailer park or baby falls down a well. Ripley, that's a horrible thing to wish for. You know what I mean. People like to read about pain and suffering. Oh, and remember when Ripley beat up his daughter's professor boyfriend? Well, apparently that subplot is still going. I went to campus to talk to Steve, and he's too afraid to even talk to me because Dad punched him in the face. What? Really? The guy was almost as old as I am. And you should have heard the things he was saying about you. Okay, one last time, and I swear I'll shut up about it forever. What is it with this guy's accent? <sighs> Didn't I tell you to let that go? I'm sorry, but there's no way in here... Did I get that right? You did. There's no way in here that that was supposed to be anything close to Americanized British English. If anything, Lloyd Owen's voice reminds me of that running gag they used to do on Family Guy, where they would make fun of Europeans who live in California. Oh, for definite. It's just like a childhood game of hide and find. You said it, friend. What do you say for celebration we go dunk our whistles in the trough? Oh, you said it, friend. And it's especially grating, considering this is supposed to be a so-called all-American family. Right down to the Corvette that he bought his son and then he immediately sold to help fund the casino. You know, America. There are plenty of American theater performers who I'm sure would have liked to do this show no matter how stupid it turned out to be. Okay, I'll admit, this show might have actually been an infinitesimal amount better if they got someone like Craig Bierko in the Ripley role. 
Too bad by this time he was already a cast member on Boston Legal. Meanwhile, let's see what's happening on a completely different genre of TV show altogether, as the detective continues to piece together who may have knocked off Ripley's business partner. Buddy Baxter was killed with the 45 at close range. Killer wasn't taking any chances. So why the contusions on the back of Baxter's head? Got bump post-mortem, maybe. According to the coroner, blunt force trauma occurred before death. So someone hit Buddy Baxter on the back of the head and shot him. Or one person hit him and another one shot him. Probably someone in here. As a reminder, no, this is not a CSI spinoff. Even though both shows took place within close proximity to each other on the map, perhaps if the show had, I don't know, any level of success, it might have been easy to do crossovers. Unfortunately, we're not so lucky. As Ripley and his son bond over fixing his latest car, Ripley's son finds a gun taped against his father's toolbox. One that, for the sake of screwing up continuity, the son thinks belongs to Ripley and- Okay, I've been patient long enough. When are we going to talk about that scene from The Soup? Do we have to? Your season just started. You don't want it to end after one show, do you? Well, it looks like we can't hold back any longer. Ripley's speaking voice has been a mere annoyance so far in comparison to him singing. And folks, we need to talk about that for a moment because, as Diva alluded to moments ago, this is the one scene from the entire series that everybody remembers, whether they've actually sat through an episode or not. And all thanks to Joel McHale replaying the shit out of it back when he hosted The Soup on the E! Network. Why, why would you cancel that? We need that. But first, a little stage setting. Apparently, Ripley and Bunny are back on speaking terms, even though she chewed him out in the last episode. And in spite of all the circumstances, Bunny is still willing to help bail out Ripley after a rough opening night. What do you want, Bunny? I came to apologize to you and to tell you that Buddy's will is being read tomorrow. You know what I'm going to do with part of my fortune? What? I'm going to take the six million that Buddy pulled out of the Viva and put it back in. Really? Yeah. I even had papers drawn up to show you how serious I am. We don't need your money, Bunny. Yes, we do. And Ripley defies her offer with what I can only consider as a duet between Elton John and an ocean-marinated piece of driftwood in metrosexual clothing. You're gonna go bust, Ripley. You're gonna lose everything. Yeah? Well, I started with nothing, Bunny. Opened my first Rip Mart with 20 bucks to my name. And that's exactly what's gonna happen again unless you let me help you. You can never know what it's like. Your blood like winter freezes just like ice And there's the cold lonely light that shines from you You wind up like the wreck you hide Through a bizarre set of images, we get to see how Ripley made his fortune by opening a chain of convenience stores throughout the 80s, as well as all the people he met along the way, including his future accountant, Jonesy, and his future casino floor manager, Diane. And for the sake of this being a non-visual description, the best way I could describe these two minutes of network airtime is a combination of exposition dumping, constipated dance moves, have we mentioned the tone-deaf singing that's being drowned out by actual talent, and perhaps the most lifeless energy I've seen on an escalator since you-know-who announced he was running for president. If you've seen Rocket Man, then for the love of everything unholy, do not watch this scene. It will destroy any and all positive feelings you have about I'm Still Standing. 
The staging is awful, Owen's performance is so anemic it needs iron supplements, and the flashbacks just make me wonder why Natalie, Jonesy, and Diane continue to support this man who always seems to be one scheme away from leaving them all broke on the street. Oh, uh, sidebar, Your Honor? Granted. One of the TV shows that I always wanted to cover here in Telehell but could never find access to was that of a 1969 comedy variety show called Turn On, a show that was notorious for not only being one of the first TV series to get canceled after one episode, but that one of the affiliates carrying the show actually canceled it and took it off the air within its first ten minutes. Relevance? If there was any justice... Viva Lachlan should have been cancelled the moment that production number took place and had the remainder of the hour be filled out by the stopwatch on 60 Minutes. I'm still standing after all this time Breaking up the pieces of my life without you on my mind But instead, we must plow forward. So, Ripley's got a pride problem when it comes to getting money. How does that work out? You know how Natalie feels about her. I get into bed with Bonnie Baxter and kiss my marriage goodbye. You're gonna be kissing the Viva goodbye if you don't start filling this place up, ripples. We just need to generate some positive buzz, turn our luck around. I know, how? We need a whale. A whale? Is that a gambling term or are they just making it up for the show? I guess. I mean, according to IMDB, this episode is titled What a Whale Wants. I was just under the assumption that it was an opera singer that was gonna belt out Christina Aguilera's songs. But, according to most gamblers' terminology, a whale is when somebody with a lot of money goes into casinos to bet that aforementioned lot of money in an effort to attract attention and possible future gamblers to that particular casino. Ah, that's probably more of a devil investor than somebody running a Ponzi scheme. It's a fine line to walk. But then again, so is being the subject of an ongoing murder investigation. Detective Carlisle, partners are always trouble. Yeah, like Buddy Baxter when he pulled his money out of the Viva. It was his money. Do whatever he wanted. Until someone shot him in the head. I already told you. I was at home with my wife that night. Not according to the grieving widow. Money is a manipulative bipolar nymphomaniac. Oh, rich bipolar nymphomaniac after she inherits her husband's estate tomorrow. That's her business. Meanwhile, Jonesy tries to undo the damage Ripley made with Bunny thanks to his stilted escalator dancing. An image that will remain burnt into my head for the rest of eternity. Oh, please. You don't think that Ripley lies to you? No, I wouldn't do that. He's my friend. Ripley does not have friends. He has business associates, just like Buddy was. And look what happened to him. Wait a second. If you think Ripley killed Buddy, why would you still want to help him? Everybody has their faults. A valid point. Why would you want to help someone who may or may not have murdered your husband? I mean, I've seen mood swings in my day, but even for the sake of TV drama, people can't just move on at the drop of a hat. It doesn't really matter since the mere fact that Bunny has mentioned that there is a will and she expects to be the primary beneficiary of it means this ends with her standing penniless outside her house while Anna de Armas looks down from the balcony and gloatingly sips her coffee. So while our sense of disbelief is suspended higher than your average Cirque du Soleil performer, we get our next incompetently staged jukebox number, this time with a classic hit, Money. Oh, not that one. Not that one either. Barrett Strong, the Barrett Strong version that's been covered by practically everybody in pop music. Jeez. You know the best. 
things in life are free But you can give them to the birds and bees I need numbers are a total enigma to me. On the original Blackpool, they seem to have been able to afford enough to not only secure the rights to their music, but also have enough left over to have, at the very least, competent choreography. Then again, they do have laws in the UK where you have to pay to use a TV each year, so perhaps that's how they were able to get away with it convincingly. What have the BBC ever given us? Well, there's, there's chat shows. Oh, shut up, Wogan. Here, CBS, which even at its worst can pull in several billions of dollars in ad revenue a year, had to have gone so overboard with the music that any attempt to justify the songs with a halfway competent production number is hobbled worse than Kathy Bates to James Caan's ankles. There has to be a disconnect somewhere. Getting back to the plot, Ripley and Jonesy find their metaphorical whale and try to figure out how to land him at their casino. Tell me how we're going to steal away Sweet Lenny from Fontana's. You know your problem, Jonesy? You play fair. That's not how you beat Nicky Fontana. You know something, don't you? I got a man on the inside. Now, according to him, Sweet Lenny has a weakness for a certain type of woman. But enough of that story. It's time for another plotline whiplash, where the detective tries to make moves on Ripley's wife at the crisis center where she works. First you're outside my house, then you're in my grocery store, now you're here. Yeah, well, I, uh... I found out your name from your address, and then I looked you up online to see where you worked. So you're stalking me? I'm... I'm Peter. Appleby. I'm a developer. I made a small killing in the Vegas housing boom, so I figured I'd do the same here in Laughlin. I know I may be jumping the gun here, but in reading up on how the original series went down, plus the fact that this was the last aired episode of the American version, it's almost as though they wanted to lay out all the cards on the table immediately when it came to these two. Maybe it's because he's thinking with his little nightstick, but Peter is spectacularly bad at this undercover thing. His entire plan was to walk into Natalie's place of work, after accosting her outside her house and at the store, mind you, and just start in with, hey, I think my girlfriend's cheating on me because she stayed out all night and wouldn't tell me why anything like that happened to you. Please say yes and speak into the wire. Natalie, who, despite staying married to Ripley in a state where you can get divorced faster than you can get fully vaccinated against COVID, has the most common sense of anybody in this series, and is, of course, instantly skeptical. After that, we get another tonal whiplash when we see what's happening with Ripley's kids. As if we cared. The son is bringing the daughter's belongings over to a friend's house where she's staying for a while and- Holly, this is my little brother, Jack. He doesn't look that little to me. Is he coming to the party tonight? Anna Kendrick? Somebody with actual singing talent is in this show, and she's not singing because... Maybe because she was practically a kid back then, give or take being in her early 20s, and this was long before the Pitch Perfect movies. In fact, it was about a year before Twilight. But still, yes, she did start her career as a child actor on Broadway, worked her way up to several plays, even did a movie musical called Camp, and yet the brain trust behind this show only gives her a couple of lines of dialogue in this episode, before we never see her again. I wouldn't be surprised if she was supposed to sing in a later episode, but... you know. Still, though, there's wasted talent, and then there's having a secret weapon at your disposal that you'll never be able to use. I'm not saying she would have saved the series if she did sing, but 
she would have at least helped the show air its third episode if the producers knew what a good thing they had in their holsters. Regardless of that missed opportunity, we whiplash ourselves back to the main plot of how to convince the whale to come by Ripley's hole in the wall. And in order to pull that off, Ripley, Jonesy, and floor manager Diane try to cater to one of the whale's weaknesses. So what is it I have to do? What pretty girls do best, make him think he has a chance, then suck him in. Well, if he's that good looking, I might do more than just suck. And after a brief interlude between Ripley and D.B. Woodside, we then get to listen to the next song out of the jukebox. Take this one, narrator. Oh, I'm not going there. Especially in front of a judge, jury, or executioner. Fortunately, for the sake of good taste, there is a method to the madness. Yeah, plus size models. I flew them in from LA this morning. Should I still take my top off? Moving on, we get to the reading of Buddy's Will, where Bunny is expected to earn a fortune. But then, this wrench is thrown into the works. I leave the remainder of all my worldly goods and assets, totaling roughly $43 million, to my beloved daughter, Geneva Baxter. Daughter? I thought I was just going to get, like, a saddle or something. And just in case this show gets canceled after two episodes, we find out the how and the why. When exactly did Buddy change his will, Armando? Because the last time I checked, he was leaving everything to me. That would be the night he was killed. And why is that? Buddy told me why he was changing it. How he got that gash on the back of his head. But not all is lost as Detective I Wanna Bone Ripley's wife tries to get some answers from Bunny's lawyer. Say a call was placed from your house to Ripley Holden's cell phone the night Buddy Baxter was killed. Well, there's no denying the call took place. It's right here in black and white. I'd love to know what you and Mr. Holden chatted about. Well, did you? According to Swindler and Berlin versus the United States, there is no exception, even posthumously, the attorney-client privilege. Posthumously? You're talking about Buddy Baxter. He was the one that called Holden from your house, wasn't he? Good day, gentlemen. So, was the lawyer in on the murder, or... I said good day! Meanwhile, Ripley continues to do his Captain Ahab impression and tries to get his whale to come over to the Viva, but only if the odds are on the whale's side. How's a five-deck shoe sound? Better than six. You can do four. Anyone for three. You're on. Except the Viva's got a chump change five grand limit. It's going to take you all week to win what you can here in one hour. Two decks. You can call me Ripley. One deck. One deck. One deck. Fewer cards, better odds. And another thing about Lloyd Owen... For the love of all that is evil, don't mention his accent again. No, 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 no. I'm past that. This complaint is more about the lack of energy that he has in general. On the original Blackpool, David Morrissey is eating up every last second of his performances as Ripley, whether he's singing, dancing, or even being subtle. But Lloyd Owen's stiff presence, awkward line delivery, and almost petrified dance movements make Christopher Walken's performance from Peter Pan Live look like Gene Kelly. Even in that last scene, when he's trying to tell people to come to his casino to watch a high roller gamble, he's got all the enthusiasm of microwaved oatmeal when he's trying to hype up the crowd. Listen again. Hear that, everybody? Sweet Lenny Collins is cashing out of Fontana's because he wants to play at a real casino. Viva's where the action is, everybody. Come and get it. Yeah, that really hypes you up to watch some high-stakes gambling. 
if you happen to be watching in a nursing home. Be that as it may, the action moves to the Viva, but not before Detective Homewrecker tries to needle Ripley some more. So what were you doing in bed, say, after midnight? Eating, sleeping, watching TV, what? I think we are in round four. So, no outside interruptions then? No, none. Not even a phone call, perhaps, at 12.37 a.m. from Buddy Baxter? Oh, right, the phone call. Uh, Buddy was trying to talk me into going fishing with him in the morning. Nice. Love fishing. What kind of fish? Bass. Bass aren't in season. That's what I told Buddy. Followed by another plot whiplash and... Sweet Lucifer, this show is doing that so much, I'm going to need a neck brace by the time we're done. Anyway, we head to a party in the desert where the son and daughter... Oh, who gives a fuck by this point? Hey, you can't use that! Come on, what do they have to do with the plot anyway? After all, we came here to see high-stakes gambling in addition to awkward musical numbers. Hit me again. Hitting 20. Wow, 30. Guess I bust. I'm sorry, but it's not gonna work, Slick. The deck's far too rich. Double down? It's 17. Against an 8 showing. That's rough. Great show. 18 house wins. And after a series of random blackjack lingo that you'd probably have to be a graduate of MIT to understand... Only two cards left. Cowboy and a tray. One breaks you, and one makes you. What you gonna do, sweetheart? I'm gonna break you, Holden. That's what I'm gonna do. Hit me. Seems as though Ripley has gone bust once and for all. Or so we think. Why do you tell me this was a setup? To make it look real. Real enough for you when I didn't get out of the pool like we planned? God. Come on, what's one more day? What's the son of a bitch? Don't screw with me on that. Phone. You know, I, I still don't see why you couldn't have told me. Oh, no offense, Joe. I needed people to see you sweat to pull this off. It's all there. Less expenses. Well, you don't trust me? You're an ex-con. <laughs> so you see, he didn't go broke after all. He just knows some friends in low places. The kind of friends that I'm sure we're going to see week after week after week for years to come. In addition to more stilted and poorly performed musical numbers. Blow me. This show is over. I'm ready to rule. Wait a minute. What about the son getting beat up for defending his sister at the desert party? Or the mystery daughter trying to get on Melanie Griffith's good side? Or whatever Bunny did to make her husband change his will? Or the fact that the possibly incriminating gun from the garage is now under the passenger seat of the son's car? Nobody cared about that. And by this point, neither did CBS. If the cratering ratings after two episodes didn't do anything to the show, the venomous reviews did. The New York Times declared the show not only the worst show of the two 2007 TV season, but a prime contender for the worst TV show of all time. While Diane Wirtz of New York's Newsday paper said, quote, Viva Lachlan is so bad, with dialogue so hackneyed, all I kept thinking was that there was a drinking game in here somewhere, end quote. Not even Hugh Jackman's home country of Australia wanted to have anything to do with the show, as it was canceled there after just one episode. And if you need further proof as to how far this show can fall, look no further than my courtroom. The one I call the Nine Circles. Limbo. Lust. Gluttony. Greed. Wrath. Heresy. Violence. Fraud. Treachery. As we kept alluding to, this show only lasted two episodes. But at the same time, a total of seven were produced. The unaccounted for five episodes makes this show eligible for Limbo, and in the additional words of Joel McHale, Release the tape, CBS! 
The show itself tries to accentuate the most of the vices that Sin City, or at least the town in close proximity of it, is known for. All the implied hookups between Ripley and Bunny and Mrs. Ripley and the detective are more than enough samples that we need for lust. The fact that the main plot centers around the murder of a business associate gives it a lock for violence. Violence that may or may not be the result of somebody backing out of certain deals and making Ripley angry at the same time. Not to mention that slugging of the daughter's professor in episode one. So there's a dose of wrath. And of course, what would a show about a casino be without a little greed? But before you ring the bell, greed on the series would be too easy. Greed behind the scenes, on the other hand, is a whole nother animal. Because CBS, the BBC, Sony Pictures, and Hugh Jackman sacrificed their hard-earned money to secure some of the most popular music of all time. Music which, by the way, resulted in lackluster production that probably would have improved somewhat if all parties involved dial it back a little on the music spending. Now you may ring it. And all because this attempted and failed to be an Americanized version of a successful British import. This probably made people want to seek out the original version even more, making the stateside port of it a total fraud in comparison. While at the same time, ruining the hard-working talents of David Morrissey, David Tennant, and anybody else who hailed from Blackpool who might feel their best work was getting trampled on in heresy. Prosecution rests, Your Honor. Good, because I have my own ruling to make here. No matter how bad you think Viva Laughlin may be through its well-earned reputation, the reality is much, much worse. The musical aspect is incompetent, which is surprising given that genuine musical theater talent was involved. The plot alternates between dumb cliches you can see coming a mile away and random twists that are as unsatisfying as they are inexplicable, and the only reason any of the characters are remotely likable is because they stand in comparison to an unbelievably horrible central character. It's such an effective torment that it seems pointless to punish it. Game got a recognized game after all, so the court of Musical Hell is shipping Viva Laughlin down to the 4th and 8th circles, where it can continue to torture souls for years to come. Viva Laughlin earns 7 out of 9 circles of Telehell. And, quite honestly, Diva... I can see why you like to take down bad musicals. Because a lot of people put a lot of effort into musicals in general. And it's painful to see something that you know can work under the right circumstances just blow up in your face. Maybe it did work better in Britain. Between Dennis Potter having already laid the groundwork for the odd semi-musical format and being able to sell objectively unsympathetic characters better, see, anything played by John Cleese, it might have clicked. And with that said, I hope I was of some help to you today. Even for a rookie. Hey, anybody who can dish it out while taking punishment at the same time? I think you're gonna earn your horns someday. Yeah, how long does that take, anyway? I've been stuck in the limbo circle going on three years now. What's a lost soul gotta do to get ahead around here? Well, you say three years as though that's been a long time. Don't forget, you're here for all of eternity. Three years is practically a sneeze. Sometimes it can take several eternities just to go down one circle. Sometimes you have to know some well-connected demons to get ahead. And sometimes you do things for so long that you don't even know if what you do is considered a punishment anymore, so you get used to it. Is that why you became a judge? Well, that's part of it. I'm actually here because I tried to start a therapy group in the fifth circle. Big mistake. Well, it's nice to know I'm not completely alone down here. 
Thanks for the company. Just remember where we both are. It can't be all smiles and sunshine all the time. Speaking of which, I gotta send you back to your circle, and according to satanic protocol, I gotta make sure you return in great pain. Wait, what the? Oh, wait. This is one of those things I gotta get used to, isn't it? Nothing personal, Rookie. It's just what we do down here. Just be sure to tuck and roll before you get flung into a stalagmite. Okay. Thanks, Eva! So let it be recorded. This session of the Court of Musical Telehell is now adjourned. I'm still standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That song is an earworm, I'll give him that. Next time on Telehell, it's our 50th episode. And for the occasion, we get to take care of some unfinished business. No, I'm not a hotel inspector. I wish to God I were. <laughs> well, forget what I said about no charge. You'll pay like everybody else, you Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Super special thanks to Christy Esterly, a.k.a. Diva, from Musical Hell. You can watch Musical Hell on YouTube or at her website, musicalhell.com. Christy also gets a co-writer credit for helping us put this episode together. And now, here are the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. By the way, shows like these aren't cheap. Do what you can and can what you do at patreon.com slash telehellpodcast. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds? Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. Podcast.